2: Jared is going to win the Daytona 500.
3: Nobody was talking. It was all in my hands as to what I needed to do.
2: Wallace spins.
0: Wallace's car goes on its nose. It went in the air, hit the ground, then flew back up, and I flew over the start-finish line. The Motor Racing Network presents the 1993
3: season, 25 years later.
4: Mark Martin riding an unbelievable
3: winning
0: streak. I didn't realize when I won it because we were on such a roll. It was 10 years or 15 probably before I realized that I had won the Southern 500.
2: The race winner, Rusty Wallace, and the championship driver, Dale Earnhardt, each carrying flags honoring their fallen friends, Alan Kulwicki and Davey Allison.
0: Davey and Alan Kulwicki were on everybody's mind all year long, right to the very end and we always had those flags in our truck from the Motor Racing Network
3: Studios in Concord, North Carolina. Here is your host, Susie Armstrong.
5: Welcome to MRN Presents The 1993 Season, 25 Years Later. In this 10-part series, we'll look back two and a half decades to a season that saw its fair share of triumphs and tragedies. 1993. It was a year of accomplishments. Rusty won 10 races, and Dale Earnhardt claimed his sixth Cup Series title. But some of the victorious moments were tempered by the loss of defending champion Alan Kulwicki and NASCAR superstar Davey Allison. 93 was a season of change for the sport, with the dramatic emergence of future champions Jeff Gordon and Bobby Labonte. New England fans saw the first cup race at New Hampshire Motor Speedway. And Midwesterners reveled in the news that the famed brickyard, Indianapolis Motor Speedway, would be the next new cup venue. Over the next 10 weeks, you'll hear stories that you've never heard before by the drivers and crew chiefs who played a role in that historic season 25 years ago. NASCAR's popularity was at an all-time high at the close of the 1992 season after fans witnessed the closest championship battle in the sports history as Alan Kowicki, Bill Elliott, and Davey Allison took it to the wire. Claiming the 92 crown, independent driver owner Kulwicki had defeated the odds and inspired the other teams to get with it in the offseason. Kulwicki Racing Crew Chief Paul Andrews recalls the winner blitz to defend their title.
6: Uh, it was uh, a little a lot of change uh obviously we had the banquet to go to and that was uh, really cool we had a good time there it was a lot of change for alan you know because he had a lot of a lot more demands on him uh he had to give us uh, as a group more responsibilities some of the things that he did i know uh don hawk was there and and, and uh, you know he was taking on a lot of responsibilities between him and cal lawson uh you know just uh, a lot of change in, in that in that air that part of it you know uh a lot of adjustments you might say, but uh, it was good. It was real good, you know, uh, a real high off season. You know, we were, we were obviously we won the championship, so that was uh, that was still there, and and uh, we were working hard to defend it. You know, uh, doing everything we can to make make changes to be better and uh, better performance on the track, planning tests and stuff like that.
5: After coming so close to winning the championship in 1992, everyone was pointing to Davey Allison and his Robert Yates racing team to run away with the title. Unfortunately, 1993 got off to a rough start, as crew chief Larry McReynolds recalls.
7: You know, really, the biggest problem we had during the offseason between 92 and 93 is we didn't change anything. We, we ran so well, the majority of 1992 felt like even though we didn't win the championship that we we ended the season on a high note we had won phoenix next to the last race of the season and i've told people uh, a lot a lot maybe just because of of uh, us being a young team and a little bit immature a little bit inexperienced Uh, i think we actually got fat and lazy during the offseason and we really did not work to improve i'm not saying we didn't work but we didn't work to prove we improved. we didn't work to get better and here we had won uh the 1992 daytona 500 we had won one of the races at talladega in 1992 and when we got to daytona for speed weeks in 1993 and it kind of showed up during winter testing uh we were way off we we were just and also ran the entire speed weeks of 1993 And it just seemed like that we just couldn't find our way in 1993. We did win Richmond early in the season, uh, had a good race, led a lot of laps, but outside of that... The first part of 1993 was was just dismal. It's just like we could not find our way.
5: For Rusty Wallace and his Penske Racing South team, a disappointing 13th place rank in the 1992 standings was inspiration enough
0: to step up the game. I'll never forget going to the banquet in 1992 and sitting in the very back of the Waldorf Astoria, and who was sitting next to me was Dale Earnhardt. He had a terrible year in 92 also. I did, and it just... Sucked. It really did. It felt terrible to be sitting back there, knowing you had good teams. We made all these mistakes and screwed everything up. And I'll never forget leaving that thing with my crew chief, Buddy Parrot, going, we're never going to let this happen again. And, boy, I tell you what, we started that 1993 season, and you could just tell we were firing on all eight cylinders. Everything was right. We had a whole different attitude. We had good engines. We had, you know, Pontiac was giving us a lot of support. And uh, I'll never forget Buddy Parrott saying, we're going to win 10 races. And I said, 10 races? I said, boy, that'd be awesome we could do that. But our doggone pit stops were incredible. Our team was far better than anybody out there. And I'd come in first, or maybe I'd come in fourth, and I'd always go out first. The, the pit stops really made a big, big difference. But And the handling also. We all got really involved in the car, working on the chassis end of it, and We ended up having the best handling cars. We had the fastest pit stops, and those winds started coming, and I'm like, holy smokes, what a big change from last year. And it was all with preparation and attitude. And I think we had to get our butt really handed to us at the end of that 92 season to wake everybody up to go we're not gonna let that happen again
5: dale earnhardt finished 12th in the 92 championship standings one of the worst seasons of his career in the off-season, richard childers racing hired a new crew chief to turn the operation around andy petrie
6: well it certainly certainly looked good for me right because we uh we did have a good year in 93 but i can't take all the credit I, I actually had a conversation with some of the guys here about how that went i mean they they had 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 a bad season and, and started some – there was a lot of projects in the works, right? I mean, the engine guys were making some, re- you know, really good gains there. Um, you know, when I came, we had, we basically had the same core group that was there in 92, you know, minus the crew chief, which is Kurt Shelmerding, and just kind of inserted me in there. And I brought a – I just, you know, I just brought a different way of looking at everything for the from the car side. But I do think that the, you know, the fact that the engines got quite a bit better – from from 92 to 93 helped me look better <laughs> but uh we did we, we changed a lot of systems um on the car from you know from cooling systems to brake systems to you know putting in more emphasis on some aero stuff um and and, and being trying to be more innovative you know I, i've always wanted to make the cars better by doing something nobody else had done before and i still think that way but that, that's some of the things that we were doing in that off-season.
5: NASCAR's rookie class for 1993 was strong, with Jeff Gordon in a Hendrick Motorsports Chevrolet, Kenny Wallace in a Sabco Racing Pontiac, and Bobby Labonte aboard a new Cup Series operations ride, Bill Davis Racing. For Labonte, the off-season was a busy one as the team scrambled to build new race cars. I can remember
1: the month of December working there. We all worked there from sun up to sundown every day to get ready and tim brewer was crew chief and so i think i remember december 1st looking in the shop going there's not one car built at all and it's like how do you do this i mean you know you don't you hard to start in january um or december making this happen so but you know i mean that's you know your so your expectations are you know i mean it's not like you're like oh my god we'll never get this done it's like we got a lot of work to do so we can't we can't stand around talking. <laughs> so, so just uh, thinking about that and our expectations of that year. I mean, you have high expectations because that's your goals and that's your that's your personality. And everybody, Bill, and 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 everybody that worked there, you know, was like, nobody went in there like, oh, we're never going to make it. We're never going to do good. We're in there like we got a lot of work to do. We got to do the best we can.
5: Kenny Wallace knew early on that Gordon was going to be tough to beat for Rookie of the Year at the start of '93.
8: Jeff Gordon, Bobby Labonte were friends of mine, and I knew that they were both really talented, and I I was thinking to myself, you know, Jeff Gordon has got, you know, uh, a ride from Rick Hendrick, and Bobby Labonte is over there at Bill Davis, and I'm with Felix Sabatis, and my gosh, I'm living a dream, you know, this is, we all got pretty good rides, and uh, I quickly found out when we went to Daytona that it was going to be Jeff Gordon who was going to stand out, because right away... You know, he he won at the time. They call it the Twins, and he won one. And right away, me and Bobby Levante, we knew we had our our work cut out. You know, obviously, all these years later, we realized that Jeff Gordon goes on to be one of the greatest race car drivers in history, you know, so uh, I guess at that time, you know, we were living in Jeff's, Jeff Gordon's shadows. He's just one of the greatest.
5: That greatness showed up early for Gordon, but in the off season, his crew chief, Ray Everham, didn't really know what the team was capable of.
8: Oh, we just, honestly, we just wanted to be competitive. At, you know, at, at first, in, in 93, I don't think that we set. Um, a lot of goals because we got not we didn't have a lot of cup experience we didn't know what to expect he didn't I didn't most of the guys on the crew didn't I think there were only one or two guys outside of you know the people that were at Hendrick you know but inside of our 24 team there weren't uh, a lot of experience so we wanted to win rookie of the year we wanted to we wanted to win a pole and we wanted to win a race you know I, I think so it, it was. Uh, we just didn't know how much we didn't know. So we, if we'd have known how tough it was to win a race, we'd have been happy with a, with a, a couple second places. Uh, uh, I think we, we did get a couple second places. But if we did win. You know, we did win right off the bat. Uh, won the 125 first when we got to Daytona. So I guess you got to count that one.
5: Hendrick Motorsports driver
9: Jeff Gordon. I mean, I knew I was going to an organization Hendrick Motorsports that was going to put fast cars on the track. Uh, I mean, Ray Everham and I had a lot of long discussions about what the resources were there, so I felt good about that, but, I mean, there were so many unknowns. Not really, I, I'd driven a cup car, yes, the 92 race in, in Atlanta, which did not go so well. We were fast, but I wrecked, and it was one of those just snapped loose where it came around real quick, and I, it got my attention. I thought to myself, wow, um, okay. So, when you, when that happens to you, then you're going into a season with some unknowns or, 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 you know, not a ton of confidence. But at the same time, we're fast, and so I thought, well, let's let's just kind of see where this goes. The long season, long races. I, I can't say I had super high um, expectations. I'll be honest.
5: After a hectic off season, race teams and race fans alike were ready to kick off the 1993 season. Speed Weeks at Daytona started with pole qualifying for the Daytona 500, and it was Sabco racing driver Kyle Petty winning his first pole for the Great American Race.
10: Setting on the pole was a huge deal for us because that's the reason we went to Daytona that year. Uh, we went to win a race, don't get me wrong, uh, but we knew we had a fast car. We went to um, Talladega and basically Robin Pemberton, Glenn Funderburg, uh Lynn Cheryl, a bunch of the fabricators and stuff we had. If you, if you remember the old, uh, old Talladega with the CRC building, which is now the Goodyear building or whatever they call it over there, uh, we basically built that car in that room. Um, we'd go out and run two laps and come in and cut the front fenders off and put another set of front fenders on it. Uh, go out and run two laps and come in and change the hoods, flatten it out. Uh, we didn't have the, the room of doom in that cage that you had to put. There were still a lot of gray areas Uh, and a lot of innovations uh, that crew chiefs could come up with. And Robin worked really hard, and we picked up speed every time we went out, uh, it seemed like. And when we went to Talladega, John Wilson built an engine, and he said, here's the deal, you can go to Daytona, but don't run more than four laps uh, on this engine. So we were like, okay, that's good. So we went out and run one, I think we run one lap of practice before we qualified. Uh, That was about it. Uh, Run half a lap to get a plug check, I guess, uh, so he knew kind of where we were at. And then we went out to qualify, uh, and just barely, barely got the pole. But that's what that's what we went down there for. So I, I think that was a pretty big deal for for us. Because we worked really hard that winter to go down there and be the fastest car.
4: From the Daytona International Speedway, we're under cloudy, overcast skies with a temperature about 20 minutes ago was 67 degrees as we get ready to kick off the Bush Clash this afternoon.
5: After qualifying, the Green flew over the Bush Clash, a short exhibition race consisting of 15 drivers with entries given to pole winning teams from the previous year. The format was simple race 10 laps, invert the field, and race 10 more laps to the checkers. I'd have to say
4: that the mix of drivers is one of the most interesting ones we've had in a lot of years in the Clash. 15 of them are in there. Cagy old veterans, young hard chargers, former winners, and a couple of drivers who will get their first taste of what it's like to run the Clash today.
2: Speed Week's 93 about to
4: unfold. Here's Barney Hall. Green flag goes in the air, and this is the portion of this race being just 20 laps. You've got to make a daring move real quick.
5: Dale Earnhardt started in the 13th spot and quickly worked his way up to the front.
4: I'll tell you The car that's really moving up in a hurry is Dale Earnhardt. He just waited until they went off into turn number one, picked himself a position at the bottom of the racetrack, and drafted by
5: four cars at one time. By lap five, Earnhardt was in the lead. The battle for the lead heats up in turn one. Earnhardt blows right by Brent Moton and goes to work on Ernie Irvin. Irvin's been up front since the start, but now it's over. Earnhardt takes the inside line, gets the machine fired up on the inside, and goes by to take the lead off turn two. Driving for the legendary Larry McClure that day, Ernie Irvin asserts that Earnhardt had the car to beat. I mean, I, I think it was just he's that
7: good. You know, I mean, his car was that good. You know, it's not like he was any different. I mean, there's times that that I mean, I passed him for the Daytona 500. So it's like, okay, well, am I better than Dale Earnhardt at that day? And, and the, with, with my car and and the certain situation, but then when you when you look back on in in '93, it's like I mean, his car was really good, and and those are those are times that. You know, it's uh, something you, you ought to really be happy because, you know, you may may not have it again.
4: And they jumble a bit back for that fourth position. Tuck in single file among the front four coming down to the line to, to get the caution and the halfway signal that the first 10 laps are in the book and Dale Earnhardt will pick himself up $25,000 for leading the first 10 laps.
5: Kyle Petty admits that Earnhardt's car was good, maybe a bit too good.
10: Listen, you can watch that race as much as you want to. They cheated their ass off and that's the end of the conversation. <laughs> Okay, that's how simple it is. Okay, I'm not gonna give them any credit for that. It's a non points race, it's all about money. Why not go out and cheat? I don't even remember being in that race, to be honest with you. But that's the end of the conversation. That's all I've got to say about it.
2: He has won this event four times. Schrader has won it twice. Earnhardt holding his same groove through the trioval. Earnhardt's back in the clash and he's back in victory lane. Dale Earnhardt wins the Bush Clash. Schrader second. Ernie
5: Irvin third. Earnhardt crew chief,
6: Andy Petrie. Okay, I promise you, it was not the car. Uh, I, I've, I've seen this. I'd seen him do this prior to 1993, you know. And I, I would stand on top of the truck, watch these shootout races He'd come from the back to the front. And I'm sitting there. There's no way he's not cheating. That that team has got to be cheating to be able to do that, right? There's no way anybody can do that. Well, <clears throat> the cars that we took down there. I was I was only here for probably 30 to 45 days before we went to the Daytona race. So these cars were not. You know, I I didn't feel that good about them, honestly. I I was like, you know, I just wish I had another month because there's just so many things that we could do better. I just didn't feel that good about it. Uh, Every other year, I'd gone down there feeling pretty good because we put a lot of effort in the Speedway stuff, but I just didn't have enough time. So I I was really apprehensive. I am like, man, we're going to struggle, you know, when we get there. (laughs) And let me tell you, I could not believe it. So I experienced this knowing what kind of car he had, right? So... He never, I don't think he, he got a lot of credit for being good at this, but I don't know if he ever got enough. I mean, it was all him. I mean, the car was good, decent. I think the engine was really good. I think it was more of a reflection on his, his ability. I don't know what, how he did it or what he knew that other guys didn't, but he was doing that. It's crazy.
9: Well, does that mean the Black is back? I reckon the Black's back. We're at Daytona. We're happy. We're at Victory Lane. That's where it's, where it's all at. You know, the Goodrich, uh team they did a great job out there uh, they worked hard all winter and these cars have been changed over and they've had two different bodies on them and i was worried about this car not being good as the other car to run the bush class with and richard said we'll be okay sure enough we were so the other cars a little better than this car so we're looking forward to next sunday
5: With Kyle Petty and Dale Jarrett solidly locked in the front row for the Daytona 500, the rest of the field prepared to scrap for starting spots in the Daytona Twin 125s on Thursday, February 11th. The two short sprint races were the final shot for competitors to make the big show. For a rookie like Bobby Labonte, the new guy at Bill Davis Racing, the race was intimidating, to say the least.
1: That was very intimidating because we, we did not have, I can't recall exactly how all the provisionals worked back then and, you know, the spots and who gets what, and, and Daytona's always a confusing with the twin races. I, as many years as I had been there, it's like you still never really know who's in except for the guy that the guy that qualifies first or second you know and they're guaranteed in everybody else is a scramble so I I remember I think it was either 14th or 15th was a cutoff number that you had to be in in our race in both races and our race was um you know with 13 14 or 15 you had to be no worse than one of those numbers and I remember we were like one spot ahead of that number or right at that number that we made it in the race so for the Gatorade 125s, um, you know, was, you know, we had to make it in on the race. We didn't have the speed to make it in. And, again, it gets confusing on of what happens, but uh, we had to make it in on the race. And my brother was kind of helping me draft a little bit, and I ended up, we made it in the race. So that was intimidating and very uh, exhausting, knowing that we were, like, we were at this point here to make it in the race. How, how in the world are we going to make this, right? The effort there was... You know, every day was a challenge, you know, you might call it, and we we made it in.
5: Another rookie, Jeff Gordon, ran at the front of the field, winning the first 125. Kyle Petty swung up just a little bit in the corner, hoping to get a
4: run off that turn. Won't be able to do it. Jeff Gordon's going to hold him off and win the first of the qualifying races.
9: I mean, certainly Daytona was one of the highlights for me. I, I still look back at that race and, in amazement of how good we were. You know, fast race car. We—I I don't remember where we qualified, but I just know in the in the 125 or dual, we were super fast. We won that, and and that built my confidence up a lot. We had a good driving race car and a fast race car.
5: The second twin saw Dale Earnhardt doing what he always did at Daytona. Win. Ernie Irvin trying to get at least up
4: to third position. He won't be able to do it as they come out of the corner. Dale Earnhardt looks back, and here comes Bodine to make a run at him at the apron of the racetrack. He'll come up one car link short, and Dale Earnhardt will win it. Jeff Bodine will finish second.
6: Crew Chief Andy Petrie. Yeah, I don't know how many in a row he won. I think it was maybe nine, nine or ten, eleven. I don't know. It was a lot, a lot of those that he won in a row. And these, the years I was there, uh, he won them all too. But uh, it just, I guess. He was so good anyway, he split the field in half, so I had dudes beat half of him. That That was like nothing to him.
5: After the checkers fell on the twin 125s, the field was set for the 1993 Daytona 500. Given that Dale Earnhardt had swept Daytona speed weeks, including the NASCAR Xfinity race on Saturday, Petrie recalls that the expectations were high going into the Daytona 500. You know, we had high, high hopes. I mean,
6: like I said, it kept building during the week uh, prior, We won, you know, and he won, I think he won the uh, Xfinity race too. So, you know, the expectations were super high by the time we get to the to the race, um, and have, having never won it before, I mean, I'm really getting excited. I hadn't won it as a crew chief. He's been hit, obviously, never won it. And so, you know, like I said, the hopes are high. But the guys on the teams would always remind me, don't don't get too confident here because we've had our heart broke so many times here. And I think Earnhardt had almost become, like, insulated from it. Like, we're just going to do this. If we win, win. You know, great. If we don't, this, you know, I'll go to the next one. But and the other thing too is that he also went to the the Daytona race not just to win the 500 that was a big thing, but it was he was a points racer, and he wanted to get as many points coming out of there to have, to to get the start on the season to win the championship because it was about all, all the points over the year then and he wanted to make sure he had the most he could get out of there.
5: For rookie Kenny Wallace, just making the 500 field was a big deal. I remember the Daytona 500 very well.
8: I remember. First of all, in those days, you had to make races, Uh, you know, and it was it was a pretty scary moment for me. Uh, I ended up making the race, you know, by running, you know, competitively in the Twin 125 at that time and uh, making the Daytona 500 was monumental. It was a big deal. Uh, But I think what I remember most about that that time was we were being introduced for the running of the Daytona 500 and, and my dear Midwestern friend, Mark Martin. Mark came up to me as I was getting ready to get in the car somewhat and Mark looked at me and he put this calmness over me and he and he said, you know, they called me Herman, that's my nickname. He says, Herman, he says, You're, you know, your goal should be just to finish in the top 20 of the Daytona 500. And that really settled me in, calmed me down because, you know, at that time, you know, I had that Wallace trait. You know, my dad had won on a local level, my brothers, my mother won in powder puffs. And, you know, I'm thinking, how am I going to get to the front and lead this Daytona 500? You know, forgetting that, you know, I I might not have been in the position, you know, to, you know, be leading the Daytona 500 my very first year. So, So Mark Martin reminded me right away. And, and you know that's the first thing I remember before the start of the race.
5: For Bobby Labani's first Daytona 500, getting help from the veterans was much appreciated.
1: You know, I think I had advice from a lot of people. Obviously, my brother's, you know, has always been, you know, anybody. If I wanted to, if I asked a question, I'd get an answer. You know, if I didn't ask him, you know, might not get an answer, or might not he might not tell you everything because he don't know what you're wondering. But I, I always thought that, um, you know, Terry was right there. You know, I could ask him anything. You know, and I had a, a group of people that I could just, you know, when you go talk to and you just say, you know, does your car bounce? Does your car do this? Blah, blah, blah. And, it, you know, they would always help you out. You know, that year in, in, in the draft, you would go out and you draft a little bit. You would come down pit road and you stop a good year and you get a tire sheet. And, you know, back in the day, nobody worried about, I mean, it was so much less political bs then you just kind of do you know it was kind of fun and so i remember stopping on pit road and you get out of the car and you look at it and you can get back in and drive around backward you know i mean in, on pit road and you know you just kind of do what everything then was good and i remember alan quickie coming over and talking to me you know and then because he, he saw me and he was like all right you know you're doing good except you know you did do one thing wrong and you just got to really be careful. You got to watch yourself, blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and for Daytona, I'd run there a couple times in the Bush national car. So, you know, I did have a little bit of experience. I've been around the track before, so it wasn't like a total rookie. Um, but obviously, in those cars were different. And, you know, he helped me just, you know, words of advice. Davy Allison could help me, you know, and did. And, and, you know, I think during the twin 125s, and I, th- I know we finished 20th in the race and just kept our nose clean, but... You know terry was probably a big help obviously getting in the race because he he helped draft with me you know sacrifice a little bit to help draft with me to get you know to that point
5: for billy hagan racing driver terry labani having his younger brother in the field was stressful at first well it wasn't
6: i mean the first year i was like uh probably more worried about him than anything you know watching what he was doing and looking out for him and, uh but of course then you know down the road we were competitors you know for you know racing for wins and things like that and uh but we always park our motorhomes beside each other. We spend a lot of time together. I saw him today. You know, uh, he stopped by my house today. He's just—we've just always been real close and. Uh so it was fun to see him be as successful as he was and get the opportunity that, that he got. And, and uh, it's sure, it's hard enough to, to get an opportunity in this sport to do that, and much less have your brother be able to do it too, and both of us win, win championships. So
5: Rusty Wallace started the Great American Race in the 34th position, a typical starting spot for Team Penske at restrictor plate racetracks.
0: Every time I went to Teledegra Daytona, it was frustrating because we always qualified poorly. And I mean, it was. There's no doubt that when we built the car, we built a real slick car, and we built as much power as we could build. But we will. The, those team members right now, if you go interview them, they would tell you, man, we just never did sit back and design the best speedway car we could ever design. We never did create a different department to develop uh, wind tunnel stuff for Daytona and Talladega. We just built what we thought was a good car. And once we got through qualifying and got in the race, we always were real competitive during the race. Sometimes the results weren't there, but, well, I tell you what, the way the car ran during the race, you know, if you pick, like, halfway through, we were always in the top ten and right in the hunt and and doing that. But way up ahead, you had the restrictor plate gurus. You had Earnhardt up there and, and guys like that that really put a huge effort into that. Looking back at it, I wish we'd have put a huge effort into Speedway races. My my results probably would have been better.
5: Since 1966, the king, Richard Petty, had been strapped in a race car for the Daytona 500. In 1993, he watched NASCAR's biggest race from the sidelines for the first time in nearly 30 years.
7: Well, you know, it was a big disappointment, I guess. You know, you got to Daytona, you've been down there for all these years, and... uh, when they said, okay, the track's open for practice, first thing you do is go look for your uniform, get your helmet on, you know. And uh, that was the only thing that was different. Uh, you know, I used to do all the PR deal and drive the race car and all that, so they took the driving part away from me. So, you know, it was uh, a completely different situation than I'd ever been in. And uh, it was, a I don't know, a big lint down or a big big deal but uh just just to change my whole philosophy on what was going on uh being there doing everything except getting in the race car was uh, it was a big, big change.
2: As the Pontiac Firebird pulls down pit road, Richard Petty, the honorary starter, waves the green flag.
4: And Petty puts a lot of energy into it as they cross the start-finish line underway in the Daytona
2: 500 by STP.
5: The 35th running of the Daytona 500 started with Jeff Gordon leading the first lap.
2: Back to the stripe, lap one of 200. Jeff Gordon on the low side of the racetrack leads the first lap of the Daytona 500 as he charges towards Max Cards Rookie of the Year honors here in 1993. I
9: think if I remember correctly, I think I led the first lap, which shows you my youthfulness because I would have never done that any other time. And we were just in the hunt
5: all day long. It didn't take long for Dale Earnhardt to take command. At the head of the pack, here comes Dale Earnhardt. Down to the inside, he'll take the lead. Dale Earnhardt grabs the lead as he enters turn number three. Also, Bill Elliott stepping out of line to try to make a pass on Ernie Irvin. Meanwhile, Earnhardt leads off the fourth corner back to the start-finish line. Earnhardt crew chief Andy Petrie recalls how his driver wanted a certain feel in his race car. There was one thing about
6: the way he wanted the front-end settings on a Speedway car, which which was really crazy. I'd never set a car up like this. And we actually, I think we, we tested down there, and I tried to do the, you know, the front-end settings and casters like I had run before at Speedways, and he wanted a whole different feel. He wanted to have the car where he, when he was in the corner, that he could almost let go of the wheel, like it would turn itself. He didn't mind holding it straight on the straightaway, you know, tugging back to the right to hold it straight. But he didn't want to have hardly any tug on the wheel through the corner that's what he wanted. And I I think it helped him do some of the things that he did.
5: With 42 laps to go, Bobby Hillen Jr. crashed and pole sitter Kyle Petty was caught up in the aftermath. Trouble coming out into the dogleg. Two cars
4: get together. Bobby Hillen Jr. is out of control. Al Unser also Jr. is out of control. Both spin down on the apron of the racetrack. Remarkably, everybody will get by as they have slid about 12 or 1500 feet. But at the last second, Kyle Petty will slam into Bobby Hillen Jr. He had absolutely no where to go?
2: And now both Hillen and Kyle climb from their cars here at start/finish. Kyle, somewhat uh, distressed, with some uh, hand motions, and he goes across the grass. So to Bobby Hillen now, who trots after him, and Hillen wants to have a few words with Kyle Petty, and they are literally nose to nose.
10: Well, you know what? That was it, you just got caught up in an accident. That, that's all it was and I was PO'd at the time if you remember I climbed across the hood and slapped down Bobby Hillen's visor um, I told him to shut up three times and he wouldn't shut up so I figured the best way to get him to shut up was slap his visor down <laughs> and nothing against Bobby Bobby Hillen because he was one of the kindest gentlest nicest guys you would ever run across I just hate that happened on on TV uh, and everybody talked about it but um, we had had um, if you remember it, it really all stems it goes back to uh, winter testing. Um, some of our crew was in an accident uh, at Daytona, and we had lost our gas man and lost a couple of guys on the pit crew. So by the time we got to Daytona a few weeks later, remember, this is when we had testing in January when you could actually work on race cars and, and go and do things, which is unlike NASCAR is today. Um, but we, we went to test. We, we lost a few guys uh, who couldn't, who were recovering from the accident. Uh, so we had a different gas man, different things, and we just didn't get the car full, which put us in a different cycle. Um, once we were in a different cycle, then we were back in the pack, and it, racing then was like it is now. Uh, if you got to come back up through there, it's, it's a little bit tougher sometimes. So an uh, accident happened, we got caught up in it, and it ended our day, and that was the end of it.
5: The last caution of the race came out with 30 to go. Michael Walter breaks loose off turn two. The car goes spinning down the inside. Rusty
3: Wallace flips. One, two, three times the car turns gyrations down the back straightaway, still spinning. Finally, coming to a rest about halfway down the back straightaway.
0: Well, you're upside down. You're you're flying down the back straightaway. You know, and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. And every time the car's hitting and it's wrecking, and you're like, okay, this one here is going to be the one that's going to put be lights out. It's going to knock me out. Because, but it would it would flip and it would go bang and then bang again and then bang again. You're like, okay, and then it lands on its wheels and it's and it's okay. And then what you're doing then is you're just completely mad about who got into you, and you're not thinking about anything else. And so you're frustrated with the other competitors and what happened, and that was it. But that particular wreck, I was just waiting for the lights out. You know, I was waiting to hit something really hard, and when you hit something really hard, that, that'll that knock you out. And I've only been knocked out one time in my life, actually, actually twice. In in a wreck, and that was at Bristol, and then later on in the year in Talladega.
5: With two laps to go, the race came down to four drivers. Dale Earnhardt, Dale Jarrett, Jeff Gordon, and Jeff Bodine. Yeah, I was
11: running uh, fourth. Dale Earnhardt was leading, Jeff Gordon second, Dale Jarrett third, fourth, and uh, there was a line behind us. And uh, driving for Bud Moore in a Ford, I had some Ford cars behind me, so I felt pretty comfortable. And uh, uh, Earnhardt kept getting loose off the corners. He was, and he was slowing everybody down. But uh, Jeff Gordon, uh, that was his hero, leading the race. So it was quite obvious he wasn't going to try to pass him. He was just going to follow him to the finish.
2: Jarrett looks outside. Dale Jarrett wants second spot. He says, Jeff, if you're not going to make a move, I'll try it. And Dale Jarrett tries to grab second place.
11: And uh, Dale Jarrett and I had other intentions. You know, I knew Dale was going to make a move and coming off turn four to get the white flag, he pulled low to go underneath uh, Gordon and Earnhardt and uh, I pulled up down low behind him and pushed him by.
1: Tighten it up, coming into turn number three. Jeff Gordon trying to make the move to the inside, anticipating perhaps Jarrett sliding up the banking, but this time he doesn't.
9: Everybody knows how good Dale Earnhardt was on, on restrictor plate tracks, especially at Daytona. And even though he hadn't won a Daytona 500 up to that point, to me, you know, he was the, the guy to beat. And I was racing you know behind him, and it was coming down to the end, and, and everybody's trying to get in position to make that move in the closing laps. And Dale Jarrett got a run. And I, remember, I think he got by me. And then I got into third, and, and he made a move on on Earnhardt because Earnhardt was starting to lose the handling a little bit. Jarrett was really strong. And I decided, well, i got to pick one of these two. Who am I going to go with? Well, I'm going with Earnhardt. And I went with Earnhardt. And it actually ended up hurting me because his handling had just gone away and he just did not have... The car that Dale Jarrett had that day, so kind of wish I'd gone with Jarrett. <laughs> I I think, well, I don't know if I would have won, but I think we would have had a, a better finish than fifth. I, I lost some positions in those last couple laps.
5: On the final lap, it was the Dale and Dale show for all the marbles in the Daytona 500. Atop the pit box, Andy Petrie was aware that Earnhardt was suffering from handling issues. Well,
6: we, we were struggling a little bit with our car being loose. So, I, I, you know, Hanlon had start, really started to be a factor by the end of that one. And I was, I was a little concerned, but, I, you know, having him behind the wheel, I mean, I wouldn't have wanted anybody else, right? But it, it really started to be a problem for him, and it, it opened the door for Dale Jarrett. And, uh, you know, I, I knew that it was probably they were probably going to have to race it out. But I didn't know that he was going to be able to clear us like that. And it just, man, I can't tell you, it broke my heart. <laughs> because we had done so well the last, you know, all those, week, you know, the, the week before and all the other races down there and came within, what, two laps of winning the biggest one. But... You know, you can't win them all. We did finish second, and we went on to bigger and better things after that. For Dale Jarrett, the mission was clear. I knew what I had to do, and that my, my
3: concern was is I really couldn't see who was behind Jeff and exactly what was happening there. So once I made my move uh, to, to go under Earnhardt, and that, that was going into turn three, uh, coming you'd get the white flag is whenever uh, I was able to get Dale a little bit loose getting into the corner, uh, he had to go up uh, to... Uh, uh, save his car a little bit and so I was able to get underneath him. Bodine was on my bumper so we stayed side by side uh, as we got the white flag and as we got through the tri is where I really gained the advantage and got that push from Jeff Bodine. So my, my choice at that time was okay do I block Earnhardt because I knew that Jeff Gordon was going to be pushing him uh, so do I block him or uh, does Bodine have enough help behind him which I couldn't see at the time to make sure that I don't give up that in. Inside lane. And, and I chose to go up in front of Earnhardt a little bit because I got a little bit of gap on Bodine. And once I got in front of Earnhardt, he was able to come back and give me a little bit of push to make sure Bodine was back. So nobody was talking. It was all in my hands as to what I needed to do. Get even up front. It's Dale Jarrett down on the inside. Earnhardt on in the outside lane. Drafting help behind Jarrett is Jeff Bodine. It'll slide Jarrett up front. He's in front of Earnhardt once. We got down the back straightaway, and I knew that Earnhardt was the only person that I had to, to defend against. Uh, I could still run wide open uh, around the, the track and into turn three. I knew, or I thought in my mind that I knew, that Earnhardt wasn't going to be able to do that. He wasn't going to be, I knew if he got to my bumper what was going to happen. Uh, so, but I knew that I had to, to just run where I needed to put my car and make sure that, that I could stay wide open. And once I did that, I was pretty sure that he didn't have enough help to try to get uh, to make a run off of turn four.
2: Up front, Dale Jarrett leads Dale Earnhardt off turn four by one car link back to the checker. Here they come off turn number four. Dale Jarrett's got the lead. He goes to the inside. Earnhardt's not going to get him. Dale Jarrett is going to win the Daytona
5: 500 by STP. Earnhardt second. Jeff Bodine third. After the checkers fell, Jarrett and Earnhardt spoke about the finish. Uh,
3: it, the conversation with Dale was uh, about the, the race itself kind of. Uh, you know, he 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 thought that that jeff gordon was his buffer he he knew that he was going to have a hard time you know they took the two tires because that put him out front, and that and that's where Dale Earnhardt is the best. I mean, he can pass, but they felt like that with the car that they had. That's what he needed to do, and and him out front, he thought he could hang on long enough and and block long enough. But his car just got looser than he thought. Um, but you know, th- th- he was really happy and excited uh, for me. You know, this is someone that I you know, grew up a little bit watching and, and admired. He had helped me through my career, and uh, you know, he he was just. I think he he was as proud of me. As not maybe as much as what my dad was, but but it meant something. It, I think that it took a little bit of the sting away that that it was me uh, in, in a small way. And we had that conversation later on that that you know he appreciated how I'd come up, the things that I'd done, how I'd worked hard. I mean, he he even loaned me a race car uh, uh, years a few years before that to to run at Hickory, and I actually got my only win in the what's now the Xfinity Series at Hickory in a car that Dell Earnhardt loaned me, uh, and so uh, uh, I think that you know he knew that he had a hand uh, in a small way of, of helping me further and, and bring my career along.
5: The win was Jarrett's second of his career and the first for Joe Gibbs Racing.
3: Yeah, he was almost speechless for a while. He he was just smiling, and of course we had a lot of things going on. Norm Miller with Interstate Batteries uh, was right there, and that's you know basically how Joe got in was he had a sponsor before he ever had a race team, and it was because of Norm and. Tommy Miller with Interstate Batteries, and so you know they they were just looking around. Here they were in Victory Lane in uh, literally, I think it was maybe the 35th race that, that they had ever run, uh, and uh, in in the biggest race that we have. And uh, they was like, I remember Joe telling me later. He said, I thought, oh, heck, this isn't so hard. Uh, you know, we've, we've been able to do this. Found out later that it was much more difficult. But uh, I think that he was just so so thrilled. Uh, he had his family there, and to. Know Know that uh, we were able to put this together with all the hard work and effort that that this what was considered a small race team at that time um, that that we were able to to win the biggest race of the season.
5: In addition to building his fledgling team, Gibbs guided the Washington Redskins as their head coach. In that spirit, Dale Jarrett featured a different NFL team on his helmet each week. For the Daytona 500, the Dallas Cowboys logo, a longtime Redskins rival, blazoned on Jarrett's helmet.
3: Yeah, we, uh, we put together a deal with the NFL to uh, wear a different helmet in, in each of the races. Uh, sometimes it was a, a random draw, and At least in '92, it was uh, set up more that that we, when we were in a specific area, if we were close to where an NFL team may be, then we would wear that team's uh, helmet uh, at that particular race. Uh, In '93, they decided to to have it more as a draw, and as it turned out, back up to the Daytona 500, that uh, it was drawn that I would wear the Dallas Cowboys helmet. Uh, which obviously with Joe Gibbs still being the coach of the Washington Redskins at that time uh, was something that uh, Joe just shook his head at uh, whenever he heard that that's what was going to be happening. And then I win the race, uh, uh, the Daytona 500, with this Dallas Cowboys helmet on. And as I got out of the car, I just set the helmet on top of the car. And I will never forget Joe coming over and telling some of the people that worked in our organization that we have to get rid of that helmet, get that helmet off of uh, out of sight for everybody and so the helmet I didn't even know where it went. Matter of fact, it was the last time that I saw it for quite a long time. Uh, but Joe made sure that that Dallas Cowboys helmet got put aside, uh, that that everybody didn't see that.
7: I believe we can get, I believe we can get in here today. Now I think uh, he's got a family full. there. Kids is coming up over to car. Wives coming up over to car. <laughs> hey.
3: Of course, it was only a few weeks after that before we went to Richmond uh, that that he decided that he was going to retire from coaching. And people, gosh, the letters that I got from you know the diehard Redskin uh, Nation, They they were not happy. They were blaming me winning the Daytona 500 on Joe Gibbs retiring from coaching the the Washington Redskins, which really didn't have anything to do with each other. But it, it was eye-opening to see just what a fan base he had.
5: At the end of the day, Dale Jarrett and Dale Earnhardt were tied on the championship roster. For Rusty Wallace, a 32nd-place finish got his championship hopes off to a slow start. I remember sitting in an airplane
0: taking off out of Daytona and looking out the window and and giving it that single finger salute because I was upset. I remember being so upset in 93 leaving because we had such a great attitude going into it that um, it was frustrating. It was like, man, everything we've worked on all year long just got tore up in the very first race. So it was demoralizing. It was a real... Crappy feeling leaving, you know.
5: But Rusty's bad luck would soon turn around. Join us next time as the season revs up at The Rock, Richmond, and Atlanta.
0: We knew that Roger was used to winning. Here's a guy that's won 16 Indy 500s. And I'll tell you, at the end of 92 season, he, he approached me. He wanted to quit, he wanted to turn the team over to Don Miller and myself and just get out of it cuz the whole the look of it the way we were performing everything was not up to his standards it really wasn't.
5: Thank you for joining us for MRN presents The 1993 Season 25 Years Later.
3: Today's program was a presentation of the Motor Racing Network with studios in Concord North Carolina and Daytona Beach Florida. The 1993 Season 25 Years Later was written and produced by Rich Colbert. Any use of the accounts or descriptions contained in this broadcast must be with the express written permission of NASCAR and the Motor Racing Network.